and the West Virginia Human Rights Commission for extraordinary service to the citizens of West Virginia in the battle of absolute equality and civil rights for all. In 2016, he received a National Role Model Award from the Minority Access Incorporated of Washington, D.C. Bryson is also an ordained minister and has served as elder and pastor for over 35 years. Please join me in welcoming David M. Bryson. Good morning, everybody. What a wonderful place to be at this time in our history. I'd like to thank you, Dr. Pepion, for that wonderful introduction. This is, a, this is an unbelievable honor for me to be a part of this great gathering for the Institute for Mentoring and Teaching and Mentoring. As you know, I have been involved with diversity virtually all of my life, but I really do think that we should just take a couple of moments to, to thank those visionaries who have made this opportunity possible. First of all, Frank Abbott. I was noticing in the brochure that, uh, that Dr. Abraham thanked Frank Abbott and uh, Emerson Ruiel and uh, Dwayne Matthews, Joanne Moody, and of course, Ken Repion. Let's give them all a hand, please. Additionally, one of the finest men that I have ever met heads up this, this wonderful uh, institute, and I really can't say enough about him. He not only does this work for the SREB, but I have never really called upon him without him answering the call, and I just think that we should give a, a hearty applause for Dr. Ainsley Abraham. As you might know, I am entering into my first phase of retirement. You notice I said first phase because I, 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 I want to be just, just like uh, Dr. Robert Bell. I want to retire three times. And it's my understanding that he is retiring, and I think that we should give this man a standing ovation. Dr. Bell. I was teasing Dr. Bell this morning. This is the first time that I can ever remember outdressing him. So uh, <laughs> I don't know what that means, to be quite frank. But, uh, I would really be remiss before I start uh, to, to talk on two different levels. First of all, uh, I would recognize uh, Mr. Dan Crockett. Mr. Dan Crockett was West Virginia's representative uh, to SREB and has been a champion for the Institute these many years. Uh, Mr. Crockett retired just in March, and he passed away in, in early October. Uh, what a great loss to the state of West Virginia. What a great loss to the Institute. And I just wanted to be able to say his name and to thank him for his work, for his life, and for his legacy. And being an ordained minister, I wouldn't mind if somebody said amen. amen. Wonderful, wonderful man. 
Also, today is we are in the midst of, of a national tragedy once again. And it's hard to, to kind of go about life as usual in the midst of tragedy. And I think it, we would be remiss if we just talked about the Institute and the wonderful work without also acknowledging the great tragedy that's going on in our, in our midst right now. Unfortunately, things are moving at such a fast pace that we don't have an opportunity to grieve before we find ourselves in another challenging situation. This is a challenging situation for this, this, this country right now. When I think of 2015, when I think of, of what the racist Dylan Roof did in, at Mother Emanuel Church at a prayer meeting, went in and killed nine people who were praying to their God, uh, snuffed out the life of, of these men and women, snuffed out the life of probably one of the, the country's most rising political figures that people just don't realize, and that's, Dr., that's Clementa Pickney. And so I think we need to think about them today. I think we need to think about that in 2016, 49 people were killed at that Orlando club, killed because of who they are, because of their sexuality. I think we need to think about the 59 people who were killed in Las Vegas just attending a concert. And today we mourn what's going on at the Jewish synagogue, at the Tree of Life synagogue. In, in, in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. And I think that, that, that in recognition of that loss of life and that recognition of the humanity and that recognition that we can be better, that I think that we should have just a moment of silence in honor of these. Amen and amen. The, the diversity work that we do is large and all-encompassing. And when I think about my career at West Virginia University and the young people that we have touched, uh, I think of the SREB members that we have here today from West Virginia. I'd like to recognize Bruce Mitchell and, and Tabitha Lowry who are from West Virginia University that continues the legacy of West Virginia's participation. Uh, I think of, 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 of Gabrielle Hicks. And it's amazing that the older you get, you see, you see people you remember as young children and they come up to you and now they are working on their doctorates. And I just say, go ahead with your bad self. <laughs> but the diversity work is ongoing and it's large and it's encompassing. Uh, the diversity work, we deal with the diversification of the student body. We deal with the diversification of the, of the, of, of the faculty and the staff. As diversity professionals, we deal with this whole idea of, of, of shaping the cultural imprint, the cultural participation within the academy. As diversity professionals, we deal with the protection of the underrepresented whether that is because of race or gender or sexual orientation or sexual identity. We deal with the change of the academy. Many times the academy that so often 
sometimes unwittingly and sometimes wittingly, is actually the bastion of white supremacy and, 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 and white privilege. And we push back against that. Somebody said, say it, and I'm saying it. <laughs> We're often in charge of making changes to institutions that have made their, their, their input in terms of not being changed. So we're, we're pushing against changing many times the unchangeable, but yet we do that. And to be quite frank, we've had some success over these years. When you look at the participation of African-Americans in the academy, in terms of the students, we now have about 12% of college and university enrollment are African-Americans. Somebody ought to say amen. I forgot where I was, somebody ought to clap, how's that? <laughs> that is important because the African-American population in America is about 12.3%. So we have actually normalized higher education for African-Americans. The Hispanic student population stands at about 16%. The Hispanic population in America is about 17%. So really we have had some success in terms of bringing people into the academy. The participation rate for females is about 56% when females make up about 50.3% of the population. So those are the successes, but the successes have to be tempered with the work that we continue that to need to do. Uh, faculty members, for instance, for African Americans in colleges and universities, for full-time faculty is just over 5%, which is just about half of the matriculation rates of African American students. For Hispanics, it's about 5%, which is one-third of the matriculation rate of Hispanic students. Faculty, faculty hires for African Americans on tenure-track positions are dis disproportionately at the 72 historic black four-year institutions. In other words, one out of every five of these faculty members are at HBCUs, but the, 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 despite the fact that HBCUs only account for just 1.7% of all faculty members nationwide. For all of our Herculean efforts to move forward what has been accomplished over the last 10 years is a challenge. For instance, uh, participation in the academy for people of color over the past 10 years, ending in 2016, the most recent time for which we have available uh, 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 statistics, has failed slightly from 7% to 6.6%. And this was done during a time when there was support from on high, who can only imagine where we will go now with the craziness that is coming out of Washington, D.C., with the pushback and, and, and the, the nullification that we see on a real-time basis. So while we uh, come together, and while we celebrate the advances, there's still a lot of work to do. While there is still so much work to do in the area of diversity, I would like to leave you this morning with the, the importance of your presence in the academy. You see, you are the legacy and you are the hope for the future 
in terms of changing the trajectory that we have historically had in higher education. And we are depending on you to change the academy. Now I know that's a, that's a lofty goal and I know that many of you are here and you have your resumes in hand and you're looking for that next job and here I stand before you and while you're trying to get into the academy, I am challenging you to change the academy, but somebody's got to do it. And I believe that you are up to it, that you will change the academy and you will change it. You will change it because of, of, of the great research that you're doing. You will change it because of who you are. You will change it because you are prepared. You will change it because it needs to be changed. And history is looking at you. History, those shoulders upon which we stand. Though history is looking for you to be the change agents. And I'm gonna ask somebody to clap for that. And the reason, And the reason I'm asking you to clap for that, it's kind of hard to clap for yourself, right? Somebody's challenging you, and I'm going to clap for that. But yes, that is the challenge, and that is the belief that we have in you, that you will be the seminal generation to change all of this. But in addition, as we continue from a structural standpoint to try to change the academy, uh, we're trying to change hiring practices and how committees go about making employment decisions. We're trying to change how, how promotion and tenure is done in order to make it more fair. We're trying to change the culture at predominantly white institutions. But for all the changes that we're talking about that needs to be done, I am here today to ask you in fundamental ways not to change. I am asking you as you go into the academy, as you go into your career, I am asking you to bring all of you into the academy. John Legend has a song where he says, all of me loves all of you. Oh, y'all know it, huh? He says, I love your curves and I love your edges. I love your perfect imperfections. And my wife was looking at me as I was saying that. She, I didn't realize I was going to come and rap to my wife in the middle of the speech. But I think it is important for you to bring all of your perfect imperfections into the academy. Don't change. Don't change. Be who you are. It is interesting because that the more that, that we are dealing in the 21st century, we're dealing in an area of unparalleled brain science and related research. We are learning how we use parts of our brains to create and store and access not only information, but the meaning that information holds for us as individuals and the implications of that for our society and the power of the narrative Turn to your neighbor and say, the power of the narrative. Come on, the power of the narrative. The power of the narrative or story is emerging as an important piece of these discoveries. It seems that as, as, as human beings, we are always telling ourselves and others stories 
about experience and life itself. We use this warehouse of stories to organize and to categorize our way through life. We literally call up shared stories to help us make decisions, make meanings, and navigate situations on a daily basis. Importantly, this country has a series of meaning-making narratives that create enormous challenges for identity formation, community empowerment work, and equity advocacy. You see, versions of the narrative so often is not a complete narrative. Often the narrative does not complete the whole story, but yet institutions, particularly in higher education, operate on false negatives that do not include the whole story. Versions of the Horatio Alger story, in which a poor person lifts himself up from poverty to influence by his own bootstraps, underlies the classic American individualistic narrative. Our conceptions of success and failure, as well as the normative baseline for critiques of public policy aimed at redistributive justice and a social net. In other words, the melting pot narrative that we so often talk about dictates that cultural identities should be subsumed under the American identity. And this suggests that any ethnic group that seeks to maintain the integrity of its language or its cultural traditions is somehow, quote unquote, un-American. And so when you hear words like make America great again, what you are actually hearing is make America like it used to be without inclusion. And I'm here to tell you today, we are going to be included. I don't care what kind of red hat you wear, we are not turning back the sands of time. We are here. We have always been here. We deserve to be here. And as we sit at the table, it is our presence that will change America for the better. <laughs> this, 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 this metaphor of the melting pot has a cruelly ironic twist for the descendants of the initial inhabitants of the land that we now call the United States. The still celebrated Columbus discovery story flattens many different tribes and people into a single category and renders invisible the rich history of indigenous communities in America. Just because Columbus was lost, it didn't mean that the indigenous people were lost. Further, though, the colorblind narrative tells us that race shouldn't matter, according to Bill. And if race doesn't matter, then the policy seeking to address racial inequities, people who identify race as salient, and any racial group desire to retain a distinct racial identity are actually, quote unquote, the racist or playing the race card. And again, I just got to say, the devil is a lie. 
And so when I say to you in the midst of all of these challenges that I am asking you in the midst of all of your education, all the things that you have done, all of the, all of the great hopefulness that you have, when you go to these workplaces, when you go to the academy, bring all of you. But in order to bring all of you, you have to know who you is. <laughs> I couldn't think of a better way to put that, by the way, and I, 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 tr I worked through it, Dr. Abraham. But you need to know who you are. And so throughout my career, I have always brought my narrative to the table. And I think it's important for you to do a history of you and your family and your people because if you don't know who you are, you aren't going to be able to change the academy to reflect who you are. Let me give you a couple of examples from my narrative. And I continue to work on my narrative on a daily basis. I was born in 1954. That used to seem like not very long ago. <laughs> but I was raised by my father, Sim Fryson who was born in 1896. Somebody said, wow, the counted, I, I'm not that old. He, 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 he was 58 when I was born. And somebody said, go ahead, Sim Fryson. <laughs> but he had been raised by his grandfather, who was born in 1834. So see, when people have this narrative that, you know, it seems like you guys would have stuff together. It's been so long. It may seem long 150 years in terms of years, but it's not long in terms of lifespan. And so when I make unabashedly that there needs to be programs designed because of the carnage that has been made on African-American, Hispanic, Native American families and their history. But by knowing my history, I know that in 1834, when my grandfather was born on a slave plantation, his name was Simp Bonner, I know that in that same year, this is my narrative, in that same year, that was the same year that England decided to abolish slavery. So had he been born in the British Empire, he would not have been a slave. That's meaningful, y'all. Time and place makes a big difference. My father, who was born in 1896, was born the year of Plessy versus Ferguson. And those of you that know anything about American apartheid, you know the Plessy versus Ferguson stood for the actuality that separate could be equal. And anybody that lived through that time, you know that it was separate, but it was anything but equal. American apartheid. But yet he lived that, those 58 years before I was born. I was born in 1954, and those legal scholars, you know, in 1954 was the year of Brown versus Board of Education. That when we decided, the Supreme Court decided to listen to the dissenting voice in Plessy. See, many people don't talk about the Plessy was not a unanimous decision. There was one voice, and his name was Justice Harlan. 
Justice Harlan said, you know, what we're doing today is wrong, that our Constitution should be colorblind. Well, now here we are almost 100 years later, and people are trying to make the Constitution colorblind when it has been so color conscious. Since it was so color conscious, we just can't go straight to colorblind because our people struggle under that legacy. And so groups such as what we're doing today is important, and you are playing an important part of history. So I have lived my life under the change of the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education. And for all of its impact on society, it didn't go far enough. And actually, the more I look at Brown, I have some problems with Brown, to be quite frank. Because there is some language in Brown that seems to indicate that for us to be by ourselves would be inherently uh, unequal, and that really wasn't the point of integration. And it kind of led us, rather than to integrate, we kind of dissembled, disassembled our institutions, we disassembled our businesses, we disassembled our, 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 our communities in this idea of trying to chase after integration when really what we really wanted was equality. That's what we continue to strive for. But interesting, my son David was born in 1978. And 1978 was the, the year of the Bakke decision. The Bakke decision was when we first had started having that pushback against affirmative action. Uh, the Bakke decision basically said that quotas would no longer be uh, constitutional. The Bakke decision kind of opened the door for the pushback, the continual pushback that we see on affirmative action. And my first grandson was born in the year of the Grutter decision, where it seemed that we are moving toward not having race being used as any type of criteria. Uh, after all of that. Now, uh, I didn't just say that because I wanted you to know what my family has been through. I said that because that is my narrative. And wherever I am, I talk about my narrative. Wherever I go, I, I bring all of my people with me. Wherever I go, it would be, it would be in degradation to that slave in 1834 if I did not find a way to mention his name. If I did not thank him for his sacrifice, if I did not thank my father for his sacrifice. And so it is important for each of you, as you go into the academy, to chart out your own narrative. And I believe that you'll be surprised at what you find the richness of our history, the richness of our people, the peoples, the things that our people have done to bring us to where we are is an amazing story that needs to be told and retold, particularly in the academy. Because so often the expectation for you as you go to the academy is that you need to change. And I'm suggesting to you that no, you don't need to change. You need to be who you are. And when you are who you are, it will automatically change the atmosphere of where you are. Y'all still with me? And so as we look at where we are now, 
I think it is so very important for you to bring all of you into the academy. Bring, 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 bring yourself. Bring your history. Bring where you've been. Bring where you're going. Bring all of that into the academy and things will change. Uh, I didn't mean to go here, but I think I may have five minutes left. And so it is a Sunday morning. And while I promise not to hoop, y'all know what hooping is, don't you? Yeah, I, I'm not going to hoop. Don't worry, Dr. Abraham. We'll get out of here okay. I think it is important for us on this day, when we are dealing with the tragedy at the Tree of Life Synagogue, is to maybe just take a look back at a, at a, at a text that kind of speaks to us today in terms of being who you are. Uh, you know the three Hebrew boys? How many of you know about the three Hebrew boys? You know about the three Hebrew boys. And, uh, does anybody know the three Hebrew boys' name? Yeah, it's the right story, but it's the wrong narrative. Because to be quite frank, that was their Babylonian name. Their Hebrew names was Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. And so you see the difference in the narrative is how, who tells the story. And so on the one hand, we remember Shadrach, Meshach, and the Bendigo. And I probably get in trouble. We used to say in my church, Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro. <laughs> okay, I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> But it is interesting that the ruler of its day had had, had a dream about uh, a golden toilet and, and golden hair. Oh, no, that, that wasn't. That was. I'm sorry, I got my ages mixed up. He had had a dream about a golden statue. And so he decided that he was going to he, he was going to open up a university for the matriculation of these Hebrew uh, children that were brought over. And so he, 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 he went to, 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 to Israel and he ravaged the country. And he brought back all of these, these, these royalty. He brought back the whole royal family, to be quite frank. And many times kings would do that to end the lineage. And one of the first things that he tried to do, he tried to take away their name. And I would suggest to you that that has happened to so many of us. We have names like Bonner and Fryson, but that's not our real name. And because of that, that sometimes that we kind of suffer under who we are, and I think it's important. My next value in terms of mapping my own life is to take it from 1834 and go back to Africa and figure out where that was, that seat of our power. And of all the things that I try to do in terms of the diversity work is to bring our brethren and sisters from, from, from the mother continent to be in lockstep with us. And I'm going to ask you to say amen to that one. Because we're all one people. And the more that we can be separated as a people, the weaker that we are. Uh, but back to the story. He goes and he brings the, 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 the royalty 
uh, Brother Bob. And, 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 and basically, the first thing he does is he changes their name, and then he changed their diet, then he changed their worship. But interestingly, and I will call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but actually Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they push back against the academy. First of all, they, along with their friend Daniel, said, you know what, we, we don't want to eat the way that you eat. We want to eat the way that we want to eat. So they did not drink the king's wine. They did not eat the king's meat. Now, there is something important in that because they brought all of themselves into the situation and refused to be brainwashed by the powers on high. Uh, they then brought themselves and referred to themselves in terms of their ancestry. Uh, and finally, they brought all of themselves. Uh, later on, when that monarch just absolutely lost his mind and wanted to have people genuflect to him and to, and to raise his name and to, to make Babylon great again, <laughs> the three Hebrew boys says, well, everybody else might kneel to you. But that's not the way we roll. You see, there's only one God, and we will kneel to the God of our fathers and not to you. And so the story goes on that, 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 that the sovereign didn't like it. Y'all know the story, right? Y'all know what happened to him. He threw him in, into the fiery furnace. I can't believe I'm talking to scholars about the fiery furnace of Babylon. I, I just, life is something, isn't it, the way it, it, it brings you about. But you remember the story that they were protected in their integrity. And hey, here we are 3,500 years later, we don't know anything about those that lost themselves in the midst, that gave up who they were to be a part of the society in which they end. But we do know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they brought all of themselves, all of their history, all of their heritage. I say to each of you, as you leave this place today, I challenge you in your educational splendor, in your research that is beyond peer, in your understanding of sciences. I met a young lady yesterday and I asked her what was she majoring in and she said evolutionary biology. I said, go ahead with your bad self. <laughs> I went into law because I couldn't get through biology. <laughs> but I am saying to you, no matter what your background is, rooted and grounded in your own history. And when you do that, it is surprising the opportunities that you will have to change the academy. I, like John Legend, I'm saying bring all of you, bring all of your history, bring all of your legacy, bring all of your family and your ancestors with you. And when you do that, when you do that, when you bring your perfect imperfections, the academy would change. Good luck to you. You will change the world.
<laughs> you work in mysterious way. One more time, Mr. Price. <laughs>